Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I heard a story not long ago about two lifelong Giants fans. Um, They were season ticket holders. They shared the same box, you know, right behind home plate. and, And they just went to every home game possible. They were just there together. Good friends. And of course, over the course of a baseball game, you have all kinds of conversations. They would talk about baseball and the turning a great double play and all these things. And sometimes a conversation would go along the lines of the things of God. And one of the subjects of discussion they would always have is, will there be baseball in heaven? Yeah. And so, um, you know, years went on, years went on, and, and eventually one of them passed away. And the, the night after the funeral, his friend had him appear to him actually in a dream. And he said, I have got great news. There is baseball in heaven. The bad news is you are pitching tomorrow. Okay. That was a joke. That was not theology there, okay? Don't take that home. That stays right here, okay? But, but I think we all have these questions about faith and about eternity and about, about meaning and purpose in life. I think everybody has those kinds of questions. Like, am I just a collection of molecules and some cosmic dust that is here for some 80 or so years and then that's it? Or is there an eternal purpose and meaning to my life? And we've been going through the story, the, this journey through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. One of the things that we have seen is that there is an eternal purpose to everything that God is doing. That his work in human history has been this unfolding story of his redemptive work, bringing um, humanity back to himself. That we lost that back in the garden when we made the decision to be gods unto ourselves. And we were going to decide what was right and what was wrong and not what God told us was right and wrong. And, and by the way, that was not just Adam and Eve who did that. <laughs> we all do that. We all share in that. But God has been working in human history, and that's really the story of the Bible. That God has been working to bring us back to him. And it reaches its culmination in Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, how God entered this world in human form and took on humanity completely. And that he gave his life on a cross and paid on that cross the punishment and took on the suffering that your sin and rebellion and my sin and rebellion rightly deserved. And and for all of his disciples at that moment when Jesus died on the cross, they thought that's it. It's all over. End of the story. Nothing more to be written. It was all just a pipe dream. And we know that because none of them, not one of them, truly expected Jesus to rise again. They were all caught by surprise. Even though Jesus had often during his time with them told them he was going to suffer and die. But on the third day he would rise again. But no one expected it to really happen. When the women went to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning, they didn't go to expect and look for an empty tomb. They went there with burial um, uh, to finish the burial preparation because it had been done so hastily on that Friday before. They were just hoping to be able to get in and continue to prepare the body. They were blown away when they got there and the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away. And when they ran and told the disciples, they didn't know what to do with it. Nobody really expected it to happen. They all thought it was the end of the story. But on Easter Sunday, Christ rose again and said, no, this is just the beginning. 
None of them believed it at the time. In fact, Luke tells us in his gospel that when Jesus appeared to them that Sunday night, when they were all gathered together in that room, that when he, when he appeared to them, it says, Luke says this way, they still did not believe because of their joy and amazement. It was too good to be true. And you know what they say about too good to be true. If it seems or sounds too good to be true, it just isn't true. And yet here he is standing right in front of them. And they still can't believe it. Now, there was one disciple that was not with them that night. And his name, you talk about their questions and doubt. His name has become synonymous with doubt. You all know him. His name is? Thomas. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. That's what we, we know about him. And, and, and the thing about Thomas is, I think he gets a bit of a bum rap. Because I think in all reality... If I'm honest with myself, given the same set of circumstances and situation, I would probably have reacted the very same way. John in his gospel tells the story. If you want to turn there, it's John's gospel, chapter 20. Um, if you brought your copy of the book, the story, it's on page 386, uh, right in the middle of the page. This is what John writes about it. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, I do think he's kind of get, gotten a bum rap. Years later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of, are of all people most to be pitied. And I think Thomas in his own way was saying the exact same thing as Paul. That it all really hinges on the resurrection. It is the one thing, is one of the things that makes Christianity unique from any other major religion. Because it's only Christians who claim that their Christ is risen again. That he is no longer in the tomb. That he is alive. And I think when Thomas is expressing his doubt, what he is saying is, I need to know that that's a reality. Because everything hinges on that very thing. I think what Thomas is saying ultimately is it all hinges on the resurrection. And that comes down to faith. And contrary to popular belief, faith and doubt are not opposites. They are actually Two sides of the very same coin because they both have to do with uncertainty. I have faith in something that I don't really know absolutely for certainty. I put my faith and trust in that. I believe it. 
whether I know for sure or not. The same thing is true. In doubt, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm really in the middle. I'm still uncertain. And that, I think, is where Thomas finds himself. He finds himself caught in the middle. And I think what he did with his doubt gives us a great deal of direction when we go through times of questioning and doubt. And I think we all do. We all do. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is about belief, but, but more importantly, doubt and belief. And what do you do with your questions and your doubts and your uncertainties? How do you handle that? Because how you handle that will make a big deal of difference as to how you live your life. And I think it starts with this. Position yourself in your doubt. Position yourself within reach of belief. What I mean by that is put yourself in a place where faith and belief is available to you, even in your doubt. I think Thomas' first mistake is that he's noticeably absent when all the other disciples are gathered together. It says, Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, John doesn't tell us why he's not there. We do know that when we read through the, the, uh, the account at Jesus' arrest, they were all scattered they all went in all different directions. All of them just fled. Peter stayed a little bit closer and kind of tried to watch what was going on. But every one of them scattered. By Sunday night, they've all kind of gathered back together again, except Thomas. And I think that's his first mistake. He wasn't with the other disciples when there was an opportunity for belief. Now, again doesn't say why but I think maybe Thomas is one of those guys that that it was just all too much for him it had certainly been a harrowing experience and maybe maybe for him it was just too much maybe maybe it's because I don't think his doubt is an intellectual doubt I think it's more of an experiential doubt and I think it comes from having been hurt and it's almost like an insurance policy I've been hurt by putting my trust in this place or this person, and, and it ended up hurting me. And so I'm not sure I want to go there again. It's just easier and safer to doubt rather than to trust again. And it's the kind of doubt that I, I run into all the time. I talk with people all the time who have either been burned by a church experience or let down by other Christians or maybe even found themselves disappointed with God because at a point in time when they felt he needed them most, he wasn't there for them. But that what, what people do is those experiences, what they tend to do is withdraw from a community of faith, which is the worst possible thing you could do. When you have those kinds of questions, when you have those kinds of uncertainties and doubts, the best thing that you can do is put yourself in a community of faith. Be there with other people who are believers. It's kind of like... It's kind of like trying to grasp firmly onto something when you have a fresh wound in your hand. You want to hold on to it, but it just hurts too much to hold on tight. My dad is a, was a building contractor, and I worked for him for many years in carpentry and construction and through college and off and on through different phases of my life. And, and, and I have hurt my hands more than once, okay? I don't know what it is, but my right hand seems to have something against my left hand because it keeps inflicting all kinds of damage on it. I've, I have shot myself in the hand with a nail gun. I have used a power planer and gone right up the palm of my hand. I have nipped off the tip of my finger with a skill saw. I know what it like, is like to hurt your hand. And, and I know, especially when I had shot my hand with a nail gun, for years afterwards, even after the, the wound had healed and the scar had healed up, still, if I would grab something tightly or in the wrong way, I would feel that pain. And I think sometimes that 
pain that we go through in life so scars us or so wounds us that we have a hard time really putting our faith and trust in God and really grasping onto him again. And I think that's what Thomas is going through. What I love about the disciples is they don't leave him alone in his doubt. I think that's an incredible statement. I think it, it, it speaks in, to the integrity of Thomas to be able to be willing to admit his doubt. But I think it speaks volumes to the other disciples. They don't, they don't expel him. They don't excommunicate him. They don't throw this questioner and doubter out of their midst. What they do is they surround him. They come alongside of him and they join him. Even with his questions and his doubts. In fact, it says for a whole week. You read down there. It says it was a week later that his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas was with them. It has been my dream and goal for this church since our very beginning. That we would be the kind of church that people could come to with their questions. With their uncertainties and with their doubts. And not feel like they got to pretend to believe something they don't believe, or, or to come and just investigate faith when they don't know what they believe, but just want to find out. It's been our hope and our dream from the very beginning that we would be that kind of church that welcomes and accepts people, even with their doubts and their questions. Because I think we need churches like that. Because I think oftentimes people who have questions and doubts are afraid to admit them, so they suffer silently gone through a time of doubt, if you're in the middle of one of those kind of seasons right now, the best thing you can do is keep yourself in a community of faith. There have been times in my life when I went through times of great doubt and discouragement. And there were some times in those situations where my faith was simply hanging on the faith of someone else. Someone that I admired, someone I believed in, someone I trusted, someone who was smarter than me. And I said, okay, they still believe. They still have faith. There's got to be something there for me to hang on to. And that's what got me through those periods. You need to be a part of a community of faith. It's the best thing you can do, even in your doubt. And then here's the next thing is ask yourself this question. What do I want to believe? See, that's an important question when you're faced with doubts or questions because it's what pushes you to find answers. See, I think sometimes people use their doubts as an excuse for their laziness. They just don't want to put the effort in to really find out. They don't want to do the digging. They don't want to do the wrestling with their doubts. They don't want to face their questions. And so they choose instead, rather than choosing faith, what they choose is a life of doubt or, or skepticism or, or cynicism. And then they're cynical about everything and anything. I, I was reading this week, there was actually, a, there's been a number of studies done with people who are habitually cynical. Um, and, and actually, there's, they found correlations between people's cynicism and their, their emotional health, their physical health. And, and in fact, this one, it was just a, completed this last year, was published in the uh, American Academy of Neurology. They found that people who had been habitually cynical all of their lives had a higher degree of dementia in their later life. That their cynicism and their skepticism kind of led them down a path that later in life developed signs of dementia. Now, of course, the cynics would say, I don't trust those studies anyway. They're all in it for themselves, okay? <laughs> so it's not going to help them. But, but see, cynicism is not the answer. It is actually just an avoiding of the questions. And there's no answer there. I think the thing that you got to do is understand everybody believes something. Even cynics believe something. 
Even skeptics believe something. We all have, we all have these core beliefs, or, or you might call them convictions. They're kind of the internal GPS for our lives. It's, it's how we measure the way things are and the way they ought to be and how I ought to live. And that, that, it becomes kind of that, that roadmap for life. It's how we navigate through life. We have a set of beliefs and core convictions, and everybody has them. And I think what happened with Thomas is that he had spent the last three years with Jesus and had heard some things that he had never heard before. That Jesus talked about relating to God as a heavenly father. No one had talked that way before. He talked about relating to people in ways of, of, of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. What Jesus did was he was so messed with the disciples' core convictions that he actually changed them. That their core beliefs were transformed. And I think what's happening with Thomas is that he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to believe that all that he has heard and learned and come to believe and put his faith and trust in for the last three years is now just a ghost. And I think that's what he's saying is I don't want to believe in a ghost. I don't want to believe in, in somebody else's experience. I need to see it for myself. That's what he says here. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now understand what he's doing here. He's not, he's not asking for a sign because sometimes people do that too. You know, like I'm not going to believe in God unless he, unless he just shows me a sign. Woody Allen is famous for saying, he said, um, I'll believe in God if he would only give me a sign, like a large deposit in a Swiss bank account in my name. That would be a sign. Then I would believe in God. That's not what Thomas is asking for. I think what he's asking for is, I want to know that this is a reality. I want to know that what I have put all of my faith and trust in for the last three years is for real. And what's interesting is that Jesus does appear and offers to him the very things that he said he needs. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, he doesn't just come to him and say, hey, stop doubting and believe. What he says is, here, take a look. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. Everything that Thomas said he was going to need to have faith and to believe, Jesus offers to him. What's interesting, I think, in the story is, as John tells the story, there's no record that Thomas actually did those things. It doesn't say that he actually did put his hand in the side or his finger. What he thought he needed to believe, it turns out he didn't need after all. But Jesus met him at his point of doubt. And I think God will do that. If you are willing to say, this is my point of doubt, these are my questions, this is my struggle, this is the thing that I wrestle with, I think that God meets us and will meet you in your point of doubt if you will be honest enough and diligent enough to keep pursuing the question. Which leads to the third thing. Stay in community, identify and acknowledge your point of doubt, and then let your doubt drive you to belief. See, to be in doubt is to be caught in the middle. And in the middle, you have a choice of which way that doubt will take you. You can choose to let it take you towards unbelief and skepticism and cynicism. And we know kind of where that leads. Or we can use our doubt to drive us to find the answers. 
See, I think doubt and uncertainty can cause us to grow in our faith. They can push us to find the answers, to wrestle with those questions. In the same way that when your stomach starts growling and you feel those hunger pangs, it drives you to find food. Or, or you feel thirsty and your mouth is dry and parched. It, it, it drives you to find water. I think your doubt can do the very same thing. I think that's the positive side of doubt. That it can move us to pursue a deeper faith. It may sometimes pull the rug out from under us in what we thought we believed or what we thought we knew about God. And it turns out God is not what we thought, but it wasn't that God had changed. It was just we were wrong. We need sometimes doubt to push us to deeper understanding and deeper growth. And ultimately, I think where our doubt keeps pointing us is back to God. Because when we talk about faith and we talk about belief, it's really not the assumption of a set of creeds or, or a theological position. Really, what it's all about is trust in a person. That's the bottom line when it comes to faith. And, and you know it. You know this to be true. You never know everything about a person before you can have a relationship with them. And in fact, the deepest relationships, the most intimate relationships we have, we got into not knowing what we were getting into. Think about your wedding day, those of you who are married. You thought you knew who you were marrying, and then it turned out you had no idea who that person really was, right? I see a few nudges in the air. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but it was the commitment you made to the relationship that opened up a new understanding of who this person really is. And it led to a deeper intimacy of that relationship. See, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything there is to know to be able to start a relationship. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. See, that's what Thomas is really looking for. And that's why when Jesus comes and offers him the evidence, he doesn't need it anymore. In fact, what it does is he, he falls down on his knees and says to him, My Lord and my God. He came into an encounter with Jesus, the person. And that's what he really needed. And that's what you and I really need. It's all about a relationship. And a relationship always involves questions and risk and vulnerability. But when we take that risk and choose that vulnerability, it can lead to deeper intimacy. And I think doubt can lead you to a deeper intimate relationship with God. If you will pursue it in that way. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who he's talking about there? Us. <laughs> you and me. I am so glad that Thomas was honest enough about his doubt and his questions that he helped answer the question for you and I who don't have the privilege of being there and actually seeing it. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Not everybody's going to get this opportunity, Thomas, but because you were honest enough with your questions and your doubts, everybody else can benefit from that. Henri Nouwen, um, in the last year of his life, he took a sabbatical uh, from the ministry and from teaching. And, and 
didn't really know it was going to be the last year of his life, but he took a sabbatical year and, and he determined that he was going to write in his journal every day the accounts of that day. And he did that for a whole year. In fact, it's actually been published. It's called The Sabbatical Journey. But one of the things he writes about in this book is, um, in his journal, is that he, he became fascinated. He went to the circus and he became fascinated with the trapeze act. And there was, a, there was a family that was with the Ringling Brothers Circus at the time called the, the Flying Rodleys. And, and he kind of built a friendship and got to know them a little bit over the years and was fascinated with this whole idea of how the trapeze works and how you guys do this thing. And he interviewed them and talked to them. And, and one of the things that they told them is, you know, there are flyers and there are catchers. And the flyer gets all the credit, but it really depends on the catcher. And, and what the flyer does is he swings back and forth, and then at some point he, he lets go, he does his tumble or flip or whatever he does in the air, and he's just relying on the fact that the catcher is going to be there to catch him. And the one thing that a flyer must not do, must never do, the flyer must never try to catch because it will mess everything up. It will ruin the grip that the catcher wants to make. It all depends on the catcher. And I think that is just a beautiful picture of our lives. We swing on our trapezes back and forth through day to day, doing things the way we've always thought they should be done. And at one point, at some point, and there comes a lot of these points throughout our lives, we get to that point where we've got to let go. Because God calls us to do it a different way. And we hang there for a moment in the uncertainty and maybe we tumble a little bit, and maybe we spin around a little bit, but we're all dependent on the catcher. That's faith. There are some things we will never have the answers to. There are some experiences in life that will leave us with doubts and questions. But the one thing, the one thing we can know is that there is a catcher, and he never misses his grip. John ends his gospel with these words. There are many other things that Jesus did with his disciples that could not be recorded in this. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.